I think unilaterally deploying trade finance is very hard. The adoption is not so much in the technology itself, but it's in the local law and regulations. There's still a lot of uncertainty as to the role of CBDCs. I'm Tom Parker, and welcome to The Next Five podcast, brought to you by the FT Partner Studio. In this series, we ask industry experts about how their world will change in the next five years and the impact it will have on our day-to-day. In this episode, we'll explore digital money and trade, how emerging technological developments across the financial system, such as tokenization and the emergence of digital currencies, are changing how the world trades. Trading goods can be traced back to 9,000 years ago, when settlers arrived in Egypt and traded surplus goods for ones they lacked. 4,000 years later, barter turned to currency, and money started to make the world go round. Traditionally, money was rooted in the physical, with precious metals, coins or notes allowing for the efficient transfer of goods and services. However, the invention of computer systems in the early 20th century and the relative lightning transcendence of technological achievements in the last 100 years brought about the perfect backdrop for money to enter a new digital age. Today, APIs, apps, blockchains and cryptocurrency are starting to dominate, creating a new virtual world for money to spin. In 2022, global trade reached a record $32 trillion, mainly due to strong growth in the first half of the year. But H2 saw growth turn negative, especially in the last quarter, where easing of commodity prices in Q3 took a hit on trade value. While volume growth increased in Q4, suggesting a resilient demand for imported goods, and trade in environmentally friendly goods outperformed every other manufacturing sector, there are still signs of stress. The IMF is expecting real global GDP to outstrip global trade volume growth in 2023. All of this means trade is in hyper-focus, and trade finance, by de-risking the business of trade, will have to continue to play a crucial role as a key enabler of global commerce. So what is the current trade finance landscape and its importance to world trade? Trade dynamics are set to shift in the coming decade, and high-growth economies and new corridors are poised to gain from this shift, leading to a rebalancing of the global trade system. This is Karen Flinsback, Managing Director and Regional Head, Transaction Banking Europe and Americas at Standard Chartered Bank. And also this enabled by technology and easier access to finance means that The future of global trade is moving rapidly towards a new and more sustainable trade paradigm. And this gives opportunities to make globalization work for more markets and more businesses. So, for example, a shift from smaller and medium enterprises from multinationals and towards a drive to more sustainable and a more inclusive model for global trade. And Well, in 2023, as you have said, we see a decrease in trade or deceleration of trade. We expect that global trade to grow 70% by 2030. And global exports, therefore, will rise from $17.4 trillion to $29.7 trillion over the next decade, which is an enormous number. And most of this trade growth will come from markets in Asia, Middle East, and Africa. And there are some markets that will see the highest growth not everybody is talking about, such as, for example, Indonesia, 
Malaysia, Nigeria, and of course, you know, other markets like India is already in everybody's thoughts. Also, beyond the geographical changes, there will be some trends that will be shaping the future of trade. And a fair and more sustainable trade model is really imperative. And, you know, for example, the, the focus on practices that will enforce or help the climate change commitments and other social commitments a more inclusive participation, which I mentioned already, that smaller businesses have the chance to support supply chains and participate in them. And then the digitization, which will allow more transparent and secure facilitation of global trade. And so with all of that, you know, I think we will see a massive shift both in models, both in corridors and geographic reach as well. You mentioned supporting supply chains there. 70% of trade today involves global value chains, meaning goods, parts and services cross borders multiple times before an end product reaches its final destination. This complex system, understandably, involves bottlenecks, some that trade finance inherits and that digitization can solve. What are the challenges facing trade finance? So a lot of the challenges are really introduced by the shocks that we have seen in terms of high energy prices, inflation and monetary tightening. And firstly, there are the geographical or geopolitical shifts in supply chains. And the China-US geopolitical conflict coupled with the COVID pandemic has already shown that some of the companies move to reduce their dependency on China for components. And so that's a chance for other Asian players and components provided to to benefit. There's a lot of discussions around reshoring and half of the global sector in North America have said that they will reshore back to the Americas. But it's not just the American discussion. This is also happening in other parts of the world, such as Europe. Then you have the conflict in Ukraine that is also putting a strain on supply chains and reinforces the need of more resilient supply chains. And the imposed sanctions through the war have meant that um, there's impact on several raw materials and sourcing strategies as well. This impacts energy, but as well agriculture and metals. So definitely lasting shifts. And this is not just a short-term bottleneck, but it will be quite permanent, we feel. Also, some changes that have been coming and some challenges for a long time is the feasibility of the just-in-time deliverable model is no longer there. So we have moved already to a just-in-case model and to a reshoring, as I mentioned, that is happening and will be expanded over the next few years. So Eventually, digitization of trade finance will mean that all of that is accelerating, but there are other challenges beyond digitization. So you've looked through some of the challenges, but how can digitizing trade finance reap benefits? Well, many benefits in terms of digitizing trade finance because so many aspects of trade finance today are so manual. This is Tim Davis, Global and US Risk and Financial Advisory, Blockchain and Digital Assets Leader at Deloitte & Touche LLP. And particularly as we think about how global commerce and trade finance works, many aspects of it are still really using email, right, as the technology that came into existence 30 years ago. And we can do so much better with the emerging technologies, not only blockchain, but other technologies as well. The implementation of these that are a little bit 
staggered in terms of where we're seeing successes and some difficulties. But really, a lot of it has just got to do with automation and efficiency, a lot of which you know we saw during COVID, right? We saw this massive shock to many of our global supply chains. And I think it made a realization to a lot of people about, in some ways, how fragile our global supply chains are and how we need more robust systems to both have better transparency, but also more resilience in terms of diverting and having alternative ways in which we can flow supplies around areas of disruption. The system today for global supply chains in many respects is not good at this. It's quite fragile. And so is in desperate need of some improved technology that can help us do this better. Some of the technologies that can help and are being discussed are digital money, tokenization, and blockchain. But Tim, how do they help? So tokenized money, digitized money, and as we have sort of learned through crypto, what tokenized money allows us to do is to program money. And so to some of our listeners, that may not immediately sort of make sense in terms of what that means. But as we've learned through these distributed systems, there's things that we can do with programmable money that you cannot do with existing forms of money. And, and oftentimes the question comes up, isn't much of our money today inherently digital? You know, people see a bank balance on their phone and it looks like, well, isn't that a digital, it's just a number? Yes, but all it is is a representation of a balance sitting in a bank account. That money is not programmable because it is not tokenized. And this is the real benefit of uh, not only tokenizing money, but tokenizing assets more broadly. And I think there's a growing level of interest in terms of how we can do so many more things we can do today with tokenized money and tokenized value. And it gives us the ability to disintermediate intermediaries where we can program a lot of this into these essentially what are called today smart contracts, where we can be doing things more efficiently, more effectively through the use of this type of technology. This is a really important question for me. This is Jason Thompson, CEO of Partior, a blockchain-powered value exchange. Because we're hearing about tokenization. I think BCG led a report that said tokenized assets in 2030 would be around $16 trillion. We're also seeing fractionalization happen as assets become more readily available to a deeper section of society, which is exactly the right thing to do for financial inclusion. But that creates not just a higher volume of tokenized assets, it creates a higher volume of transactions as well. So the, the problem becomes infinitely bigger. Now, if you take something like a digitalized tokenized bond and you issue that, you can issue it today in, say, 60 seconds. But if you're clearing, the actual money movement between the banks is three days. In reality, you can issue in three days. You can't disintermediate the tokenization of assets, the exchanges of the custodianship of that asset, and the clearing of the money. These things have to be developed in cooperation. So, you know, we're certainly looking at that as an open network. We invite tokenized asset platforms to work with us. We work with them very closely to ensure that within a single permissioned and private ledger, you can see the transaction of the asset, the, the value exchange, and the transaction. And that happens together simultaneously. So at the minute that that doesn't happen simultaneously, and you're disintermediated from systems or the transaction, there's an opportunity for what I would describe as arbitrage error. And from a compliance perspective in a regulated industry, you cannot have that. 
Jason, you mentioned the transactions part of the chain. Can you expand on that? Yeah, I think unilaterally deploying trade finance is very hard. So it's around the priorities. It's how do you prioritize elements of trade finance to digitalize them around key usage models? For us, we're really focused on the usage models around the, the actual transaction. I think transactions globally are now being criticized for cost and depending on the currency, different inefficiencies. So, you know, when we look at the major currencies in the world, such as US dollar, euro, sterling, etc., I think there are highly efficient systems that allow them to transact between banks, less so between retail customers and merchants. But then when you start to look at emergent currencies that are not in the top 10 currencies in the world, they don't have the same service and integration. The inefficiencies are unequal as well. So we have to look at globally how you create standards systems and how they're multilateral systems. So we see a lot of the developments today, say India connecting with another country, is a bilateral arrangement. So then you have to repeat that technology time and time and time again. With the future of the technology we're using, a private permission network, smart contracts, distributed applications, as we bring a country or a bank online, we can then connect it to whomever's on the network and increase the efficiency. So I think, you know, the multilateral nature of the way we do things now is far more efficient. To counter some of the issues and uncertainty of unbacked digital currencies, CBDCs are garnering much attention. Far from the realms of the conceptual, they are now in the era of experimentation. Over 100 countries are exploring CBDCs at various levels, with some already offering them to customers. The Bahamas' sand dollar has been in circulation since 2021. The ECNY has more than 100 million users and topped $15 billion worth of transactions in 2022. In the trade finance sector, 20 banks in four jurisdictions conducted over 160 payment and foreign exchange transactions in Q3 of 2022, totaling more than 171 million Hong Kong dollars, the largest cross-border CBDC pilot to date. How can world trade take advantage of the opportunities that CBDCs offer, that is, facilitate a seamless flow of money, reduce expenses and provide customers with a safer and more resilient access to capital in the digital world. Let me just start by saying that most developed countries now are in some phase of pilot or research, or in some cases, even implementation of a central bank digital currency. Not all central bank digital currencies will be token-based. Some of them will be ledger-based, so they will look a lot more like traditional banking systems But some countries are experimenting the benefits of actually having a token-based CBDC. So it's a little bit too early to tell how this will emerge, but I suspect you will see likely a mix of implementations. So those countries that are using a ledger-based system will not have some of the same capabilities available to themselves in terms of the ability to program money. I think if it's a ledger-based system, it's going to work a lot more like what we have today. I think if they're token-based systems, you then have the opportunity to be deploying smart contracts and other types of technology in how we automate trade finance. Again, this is not going to happen without us sort of building out these regulatory frameworks for how this technology gets managed, you know, but it at least opens the door for a whole wave of innovation. But what are the problems and pitfalls that still exist? The challenges that the CBDCs still have are a few. One is there's still a lot of uncertainty as to the role of CBDCs. So governments in their experimentation 
are not really clear, I think, on how is this going to be different and how should it be regulated and managed differently than how they manage money today. And I'll give you one example. In some cases, the rollout of a CBDC can lead to governments actually restraining the amount of physical cash available to try to incentivize adoption. This sometimes can actually have unintended consequence of actually making financial exclusion worse. So those people that depend on cash that may not have a traditional bank account now may actually be in a worse situation because they have harder access to cash. They still have the same constraints with regards to actually having a smartphone, having access to the internet, being able to access this new form of digital money. That's one challenge. Another challenge has to do with privacy and what are the rights of the citizen relative to the state as it relates to surveillance, as it relates to the state being able to sort of switch off a bank account if you happen to have a warrant out, you know, that type of thing. So in the US, what we consider the Fourth Amendment, the sort of search and seizure rights of citizens. So that and then privacy just with citizens to one another and also with the government. All of these are topics I think that still really have to be addressed in order to have even just citizens be willing to adopt these CBDC instruments. It's a legitimate question that governments may want to implement CBDCs because they may see it as being an avenue to mitigate money laundering risk or to increase tax revenues. But if the citizens don't trust it, you know they're going to frustrate those efforts. And we've seen this in some development countries in Africa that have already launched CBDCs where there hasn't been enough of a distribution network through informal retailers out in more rural parts of the country. If there's not that distribution network that's actually built out that allows people that are rural that don't have ready access to banks, it's going to have a hard time being adopted. Karen, Stanchart are involved in a CBDC pilot. Can you expand on this and any challenges? So with lots of new technology, and it's the same with CBDCs, the adoption is not so much in the technology itself, but it's in the local law and regulations and also into the interoperability between them and other systems. So we have taken place in a pilot, Embridge, which is a multi CBDC pilot. And the learnings around it was really more around the legal side, meaning what is an efficient governance process that would not sacrifice the transparency of central banks, what penalties would be imposed in case of some regulatory violations, and then we can think about potential solutions. Some of the challenges were around liquidity and how do you support as a bank, sufficient liquidity, both for the digital and also the traditional currencies. For an exchange provided some of the challenges because you need real-time rates and therefore there needs to still be solutions that need to be found. So again, the challenges that we discovered were not so much in the technology, but in the area surrounding it to make it an efficient system to compete in an efficient marketplace. So what does the next five years look like? And what do you want to see happen in the next five years in the trade finance sector? Jason? So I think when I look forward to the next five years, not just for our company's evolution, but actually the evolution of the industry, that life is going to change. The way money is distributed, collected and cleared is changing. There's data benefits in terms of efficiency of lending. So we can only expect that digital money will play a bigger part in our life. 
Now, then when we think about the institutes and the, the supply chain of digital money and how they operate, we're seeing very different levels of development. It's a paradigm shift to the new from the old. And we're seeing that, you know, 33% of organizations are really on that journey. 33% of organizations are trying to understand how they'll get on that journey. And 33% of organizations are kind of not sure that maybe they're in denial. I don't know. So I can just see that the order will change. I can see that digital organizations heavily invested are going to move forward very, very quickly. So when we look forward, we specifically look at two things, integration and cooperation. Now, we can call cooperation interoperability. It's a form of cooperation. So integration is going to change. The way that systems and enterprise systems operate today in a lot of financial institutes is systems operate as a stack inside the bank. But the way this will be in the future, you'll have a collaboration of private organizations like my own working with regulated organizations like the bank we serve. So the way that the ledger works, the bank ledger to a distributed ledger is going to have to change the way we integrate directly into ledgers and become a source of truth. That's going to require banks to think more openly about their governance, but still uphold security. So there's, there's just fundamentally different integrations that will be required to allow the future of commerce to happen. Then secondarily, cooperation, it's not just about interoperability. You know, to a large degree, you need to leave your ego at the door and understand we're solving huge industrial problems. One organization will not do that. So we have to discuss. We have to be comfortable being in the same room. We have to understand the size of the problem is greater than us all. So I would say cooperation is something I look for. When you have cooperation, you can find standards around interoperability. It's very easy. That's just technology. It's the cooperation that allows the technology. Karen? Well, I would love to have a crystal ball, but I would certainly hope that an increased adoption is driven forward by all the players because digitization is nothing new and the benefits are very clearly there for everybody to see and we have outlined them before. But I think it's really, really important that the adoption will be driven by a regulatory change, industry standards and competition. And the quicker banks can agree on some of these industry standards, the quicker we can make that happen, the adoption will increase. Therefore, standardization is really very, very important. And I hope that will be a trend that will allow us to get increased adoption. So the real challenge and the real trends I hope will going to emerge are to ensure that blockchain can be used efficiently, particularly in the tokenization of assets and smart contracts and into secure record keeping. So that is hopefully something that will emerge. We have also seen and we will continue to see increased collaboration. So that means between the businesses, between banks and other intermediaries, which is really, really necessary. For us, it's really important that all of our markets and all the participants in these markets become really entrenched in the global trade system. And, you know, the inclusiveness is very, very much a part of that. And the sustainability of these trade finance transactions is also very important. So the banks can play that role, but can also bring in the participants. And I think that is the overall goal in the digitization. It's not the technology itself, it's not just the efficiency, but it's really to bring in all participants to make it more sustainable participation, and then it will serve the global economy and ourselves much, much better. And finally, Tim. I think we'll see 
continued acceleration of this technology in the next five years. When I'm referring to this technology, what I'm referring to is blockchain generally distributed systems. And that would mean in the CBDC construct, tokenized CBDC money, there are, as we've talked about, a number of challenges that have to be overcome. But there is so much potential for this technology to be modernizing and improving the way we do banking and finance that we will continue to see the regulatory environment adapt to the responsible development of this technology. I'd like to see in the next five years that may or may not happen, corporations and governments begin to embrace this technology much more closely. I think there's a level of skepticism and concern, either from a regulatory perspective or an uncertainty about the technology that leads a lot of companies to not be willing to invest And we're still in that phase where there are a few companies that understand the true potential, but this is one of these network effect things, right? Once all companies begin to adopt and deploy the technology, it really starts to go exponential in terms of value contribution. So I'd love to see there being more, particularly large corporates and government entities that are really thinking seriously about the true power of this technology. And and we didn't talk about it much earlier, but there is tremendous power in this technology for governments to be doing their job better. Bringing this back to trade finance, I think trade finance is really in need of modernization. And we have all the tools and the technology to be doing this better. COVID showed us that many of these global systems that we depend on are quite fragile. They are in desperate need of more resilient technology and technology that gives us more transparency to understand how these global systems are working so that we can better manage various shocks and disruptions in various parts of the world. Blockchain technology gives us this ability. And this is one of the core technologies I see as being key to unlocking the benefits of modernizing trade finance. After the Allied victory in World War II, James Forrestal, the first US Secretary of Defense, remarked, The only way in which a durable peace can be created is by worldwide restoration of economic activity and international trade. Times have changed since then, but the sentiment still rings true after a global fight against a pandemic and ongoing conflicts that disrupt trade. What hasn't changed much is some of the practices underpinning world trade and trade finance. Even against a backdrop of digitization in other sectors, trade finance has been slower to modernize old processes. But it needs to catch up. A $5.2 trillion global trade finance ecosystem exists today, worth 6% of global GDP. So the sector's performance affects the health of the future world economy. In 2020, a $1.7 trillion gap in trade financing availability emerged that needs to be filled. Large organizations are often leading the way with digitization, and through a holistic approach, the whole supply chain, including the suppliers of suppliers, can reap the advantages that the digital landscape affords. We've learned today about the benefits and challenges that blockchain and tokenization can bring, and we're heading, slowly but surely, in the right direction. But cooperation is needed between governments and industry. Getting it right means a new improved global trade finance system that could see 600 million new jobs emerge in the sector by 2030. 
So digitization is not just about lubricating the engine of global trade, it's about driving the sector and the whole global economy towards a new and brighter future.